Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Really pay attention. That's what listening is all about. These are the words of my guest today, Dame Evelyn Glennie, the award-winning percussionist, public speaker, and author of Listen World. After beginning to lose her hearing at eight years old, Evelyn, with the help of her first percussion teacher, honed her awareness of sound to the extent that she now describes her body as a resonating chamber. Evelyn was the first solo percussionist and first hearing impaired student to be accepted into the Royal Academy of Music. And what happened next is all part of today's incredible story of a double Grammy Award winner, a BAFTA nominee, and the winner of more than 100 international awards. Her mission is to teach others how to truly listen, inspire creativity, and improve access and inclusion to the arts for all children. Evelyn, welcome to Changemakers. What a wonderful story. And let's start with that great phrase, really pay attention. That's what listening is all about. Do do explain that to us. (laughs) Well, you know, listening is the thing that glues us all together, really. And I do feel that listening has to start from within. So it's nothing mysterious or Zen-like. It's not attached to religion or anything like that. It is just simply uh, a function that we are all able to do, we all have access to do, and we all have the opportunity to do. And, uh, and I just feel that in order to slow our bodies down a little bit, is that we've got to pay attention. Mm. That is what listening is. You know, when I glue one note to another note when I'm playing music, that's what listening is. It's an amazing mission, if you like, um, because, you know, what I take out of a lot of reading about you is that you really want to teach the world to listen. And I'm wondering, you know, to what degree did this come out of your own experience of losing your own hearing um, or to what degree did this come from percussion and rhythm and musicality? I mean, where did this kind of like... I guess this sort of idea that actually listening was was going to be a really important part of your message. I think it's a whole combination of things. I think obviously when I began losing my hearing, I find myself really paying attention to minute detail, but detail that didn't necessarily create sound. So it was perhaps someone's face you know, how the eyes moved, what the mouth was doing, what the hand gestures were and so on. And uh, and then I found that really the time that I actually felt really comfortable and in control of my sound world was when I was by myself. Mm. And which is why I enjoyed playing the piano because I was there with the piano. I didn't have to concentrate on, on other people saying things. I could just simply explore this world that the piano was was uh, was providing for me and then of course with percussion of course all of the instruments I encountered were new instruments you know I'd never encountered them before so you are always broadening your sound landscape and then there was the fact that I wanted to be a solo percussionist now this did not exist on a full-time basis before so that was completely about listening to your own gut instinct how do you function as a solo percussionist you know how do you gauge the repertoire that you're going to play how do you imagine the repertoire that doesn't even exist yet in order to sustain a career as a solo percussionist there are all sorts of things actually But then I also, perhaps a key thing I noticed was that because 
I, because solo percussion had not yet existed on that full-time basis, it meant that I had to do everything by myself. So, you know, you're analyzing, you're judging, you're making decisions and so on to move forward. And so in a way, when you're preparing pieces of music that no one else knows, you can't go on YouTube and find different 10 different performances of it or interpretations or go into HMV and find, you know, many different recordings. You've got to have that faith in your own listening skills and your own judgment. It, it struck me when we spoke in preparation for this interview that you had found inner meaning that actually the listening had given you something. You know, and I, I sort of left thinking about, obviously it has a big part, you know, of your musicality and your relationship with music, but there is a calmness about you that really does come across. And I wonder how your life journey has helped you with this, because it strikes me that people living in a very stressed world, living through COVID, living through disconnection, lots of sort of anxiousness, would love to meet someone like you. So I'm wondering, <laughs> where's it come from? What's the lesson? Well, goodness, I don't know. But <laughs> really, I, I, you know, being a farmer's daughter, having spent, you know, the first 16 years of my life on a farm in the northeast of Scotland, teaches you an awful lot about patience. It really does. You know, you are absolutely guided by the elements. You're uh, just guided by nature. You can't really force that type of thing. And also as a musician, it takes time for things to develop. It really does. You know, I'm not a big fan of a five minute sort of TV appearance and suddenly you're famous and so on. Really for longevity, it takes time. It takes discovery and curiosity. It takes all of the ups and the downs in order to give you that kind of experience and, and resilience, I suppose. Mm. And, and I think also, you know, with, with listening is that you're always in a way trying to engage with a story because we all have a story to tell. And I remember, you know, as a school kid being in a, a fairly large secondary school after having been in a really tiny primary school of about 37 pupils in the entire school, that suddenly what was so crucial about that transition whereby in primary school we all knew each other's stories because there were only two classrooms you know so most of the activities you know involved the whole school at the same time but actually when I went to the big secondary school the ethos there was that every child has a story and that meant that every child belonged to every department of that school so it really it was just like a big primary school in a way so we all connected. And that's what you do when, you, when you're with an orchestra that you've never been mm. with for, for well, you know. Well, it strikes me that there are so many parts of your, your life where the orchestra becomes the metaphor because school, that was the metaphor. But, but the farm, that was the metaphor. I, I read that you said it was my own orchestra, you know, the, the, sort of the machinery, the livestock. The weather, I mean, that must have been, I mean, I mean, that really must have shown you the gift that you had in terms of pulling, seeing the rhythm in all of this, um, I uh, guess. Absolutely. I mean, when you see wheat or barley sway in that wind, you know, it's incredible. When you see uh, a machine, uh, you know, sprouting out bales of straw, 
that has a rhythm. When you see a combine harvester, you know, sort of picking up that barley, that has a rhythm. Everything has a rhythm. You know, the rhythm of the cows, the cattle, the sheep, the lambs, you name it, you know, and you, you attach all of those things to seasons, to weather, to machinery, to the physical work that needs to be done, to the food that they eat. It's, it's, it's all linked, really. And I suppose my mission is to try to make those links and bridges. And when I, I discovered that when I started giving masterclasses, it was like an extension of what happened in the privacy of my own four walls when I'm learning something or trying to, to improve as a player. And I'm asking our, our youngsters to really ask themselves the questions, to learn how to teach themselves, to make those judgments and then action, to be curious, to listen, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, and that's the and, difference. And it strikes me that um, rhythm and balance is something that is a major issue for many of us um, at the moment. And I'm wondering how music helped you with with your own um life in terms of a life in in balance um and also i suppose allied to that is how um the loss of hearing um sort of challenged that um along the way mm. it's it's a really interesting question because i'm not sure if it's been the music is such as opposed to the sounds and you know i can live with a bass drum for an awful long time mm, because of the low yeah. resonance you know it captures an awful lot of my body that kind of core part of my body i couldn't live with a glockenspiel or triangles or cymbals because it's all in the upper part and but when you have something that can distri be distributed throughout your body in a greater degree then you're willing to spend more time with that and so and certainly during this past year, during the, the various lockdowns that we've had and, and really the, the turmoil and the disjointed kind of connections we've all had, not quite knowing what's going to happen next month, you know, or two months ahead, three months ahead, is that, you know, our whole planning and vision is completely changed. And it's literally going from almost day to day. And, and I find that really, really interesting because it's definitely allowed me a different kind of pace of listening to myself. And I've loved the fact of being able to connect with things whereby there's no expectation. So I'm not now having to learn something for a particular date that has to be performed at 7.30 on whatever date it might be at a certain place. There's a kind of incredible freedom picking up an instrument, saying hello to it, and exploring that instrument without being judged or reviewed or commented on or anything like that and readdressing your relationship with that instrument. So sound has to come before the music. It's interesting when, when you said that about being commented upon, um, because it also struck me that in your story is that two things came up um, to my mind about belief and rejection. So belief in terms of early on, whether it was teachers or your dad, people that really believed in you and gave you the space to find your own way. Um, and then the initial um, rejection by the Royal Academy of Music. Um, and and, and I, I'd like to explore both of those, I guess, in terms of, I suppose, you know, the, the triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same or however we might 
we might put it. But let's let's first of all the belief you know around you and and with you in terms of those early formative years in terms of finding that path forward. Um, should we start with you, with your dad? Well, you know, my dad was such a normal person. He was the youngest of 14 and uh, and he always wanted a, a daughter, can you believe? But he had two boys before I arrived. And um, and so, you know, I was always daddy's girl. But what was so interesting about him was that he didn't say very much. He was actually a very shy person. Uh, he had a good ear for Scottish traditional music, but couldn't read music and, and didn't have the time to learn. And he always just let us do what felt natural to ourselves. So my oldest brother was a born farmer. So, you know, he just let that be and let that evolve. Obviously, I was interested in music. He let that be. He let it evolve. And Mm. so there was no pressure in having to do something well or anything like that or try to achieve anything. He was very much of that nature of, of just letting things happen. Things just need that time to evolve. And that's what you get on a farm, you know. You said that it was, it was what he didn't say that was important. I thought that was such a really interesting phrase. Yeah, I remember, you know, I mean, he passed away 30 years ago. It's a long time ago. But I remember, uh, you know, growing up and, and starting to give concerts at school and, and then a little further afield. And after I played and once everything was finished, he would just simply go, mm-hmm. and that was it. That was all he had to do. And if I didn't get a, mm-hmm, I knew then that maybe he wasn't so keen keen on the event. He didn't have to say, oh, well, Evelyn, I wasn't so keen, or, oh, well, that wasn't very good, or whatever. In the same way, he didn't have to say, Evelyn, that was really good. You know, it mm. was just this connection and kind of chemistry, and that is about listening. So I could have said, well, why don't you say, well done, and, and you know, be a bit exaggerated. But when you really connect with someone, and this is something I really noticed when I had the experience of going into a residential home for for people with dementia and much later stages of dementia, there's no spoken word at all. And you are absolutely razor sharp with your senses. And I suppose, you know, picking up those messages is so important. And that's really what was happening with my dad. I didn't need anything extra for him to say. I mean, I can tell you, as as a dad of of two girls, when when you said, "Could I believe it?" I I hundred percent can believe it, and I think that relationship is often so so special. But you had other relationships, your, your first teacher, and really people that I, I guess helped you to address your challenges in the most positive way possible. I mean, that 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 I think seems to be part of your formative experience. Definitely. I mean, it, it. I think in those days growing up, the transition between what happened in school and in the home was fairly seamless. So it was almost like a, a, a well-maintained motorway. You know, it was a two-way street, as it were. And so the school knew what your domestic situation was and, and vice versa. And so they could join the dots up perhaps a bit better than what can happen today. And uh, and so that, that was very important. Um, and they knew the family circumstances as well. Mm. 
Um, and so they could build the story. You know, a school could build a story for, for each individual. And yes, my first percussion teacher at school, Ron Forbes, was absolutely extraordinary. And, and he came from the army music background. So he was really keen to nurture all round musicians. And that's why he saw all of his percussion players as sound creators, first and foremost, because that is what musicians are, no matter which instrument you play. You are sound creators, then musicians, because you have to understand that musical phrase, and then instrumentalists. Mm. So the technique and the discovery of the emotion just went hand in hand. And and that was why we didn't study from tutor books and things like that. Was he the inspiration in terms of to go further? I mean, I, I think he was. Yes. W- were there other factors as well in terms of? I mean, were there were there other musicians or were there? Were there I'm just thinking about the role models or, or or those that you just thought I just want to be like like that person. Well, not outside school because we didn't have people come in giving master classes or workshops in those days. We, um, you know, we didn't have a record player and things like that. So, you, you know, it was it was simply what was on your doorstep, and such a high percentage of the school pupils played music. So there was an awful lot of inspiration there, literally from your school colleagues and also from the staff, because a lot of the staff members played music as well, and so they took part in the school orchestra and the band and in the musicals and you name it. So there's this kind of real community of of, um, sharing, I suppose, when it came to music and indeed other subjects as well. But I think that the school managed to inject the importance of music, not just within the four walls of the school, but what it meant to the community, which is why we were sent out an awful lot to play in other schools, in various community events and so on. We really had a lot of chances to play in Mm -hmm. different, different ways. Now, the Royal Academy of Music, um, which you ultimately went on to to study at, could also have been a moment of of great rejection. Um, I wonder whether you could bring that moment to life. I've I've read the story and I know what an emotional moment that must have been. But but bring it to life for listeners in, in terms of what happened. Well, really, I auditioned for two places when I was sixteen years old and uh, the Royal Academy of Music and the Royal College. And I only chose two simply because I was not expecting to get in. So in my own judgment, I I didn't expect to get in anywhere. It was simply to gain experience. And I had absolutely zero idea as regards to what my standard was overall, you know, within the country. And uh, and I just felt this was an opportunity. However, the additions went Well, you know, they went as smoothly as possible. I felt I couldn't give any more at that particular time. And so the Academy did feel that uh, it was perhaps a challenge for them to accept a hearing impaired student because they couldn't really see how a professional orchestra would employ a deaf person. And so I said, well, I don't want to be in an orchestra as a full time player. I want to be a solo percussionist. So there's a sort of double whammy there and that solo percussion, you know, this had not yet existed on a full time basis. And it was not something that the academy at that time offered. And uh, but then, of course, the hearing aspect was another side of things. 
And I just said, well, you know, if I'm if the standard to get in, then, you know, that's fine. I'll just get on with it, basically. And uh, however, there was one person on the panel uh, in the the audition panel who said, well, hold on a second. We can't start picking and choosing like this just because someone is deaf or blind or has no arms or no legs or whatever. If that person is of the standard to get in, we have to let them in. Mm, Quite right. However, it was just this one person, you know, uh, battling it out with the rest of the panel. So they had decided to ask me to uh, return for a second edition. But this time there would be no percussion playing, no piano playing, no um, prepared things whatsoever. It was entirely unprepared. Things like um, looking at full scores, looking at a piece of music, deciding who might have written that and why. Uh, figure bass reading, choral reading, score reading, transposition, sight reading. All of this was done at the piano. Um, but no actual playing of repertoire as such. And, and as I say, no percussion. And that I was so used to because this was all part of our general musicianship at school. And, uh, and so that went fine. And literally at the end of that, I stood up from the piano and they said, you can start in September. How did you feel? I felt Absolutely fine. I mean, I wasn't sort of completely and utterly overjoyed and I wasn't feeling anything in particular other than the fact that fine, that Mm -hmm. is that step done. And I think I am quite uh, pragmatic in that sense in that I don't get too overjoyed by something and I don't get too despondent by something. Did you have any sense that you had paved the way? Though, that actually because this is what I think about you as a change maker right is that not only not only have you do, have you created um a whole area of music and rhythm and listening that people can enjoy but also I think for people that are hearing impaired I mean you are such a role model about actually this is what is possible in life these are the things that you can do to live the fullest of life to take control of your of your surroundings and actually to face things that others tell you are impossible and you make them possible I mean it's it's such a you know to me it's the spine tingling moment but it sounds to me like you just don't fine what are we doing next (laughs) (laughs) well funnily enough I think all of this came to light in my own mind after I graduated because of course when you're at that age you've, you've got a lot to to try and put into place I mean I was waiting for the results of my hires as as they were in in Scotland uh, in order to do a degree course and so on and then so that was another little step towards what I was aiming for and I think it was really I mean I remember in my first year we were all given the opportunity to put our names uh, on a list in order to play a concerto and so I put my name on a list because I felt I could perhaps give a, a performance of a marimba concerto and the result was that well no they wouldn't spend time getting an orchestra together to play a marimba concerto because the orchestra is never going to be playing a percussion concerto in the future anyway so this was another little moment of well I'll commission a student composer to write a concerto for me and if they refuse that then I will be standing outside the front of the door with a placard you know but and actually the principal uh, the late uh, Sir David Lumsden was extremely supportive when I kind of knocked on his door and said listen if 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 you know if percussion is going to be 
uh, rejected here or tuba or harp, you know, or double bass, then you've got to make that extremely clear. Mm. Um, but you can't just say all oh, first year pupils and then start discriminating. And he absolutely got it. And so a new concerto was written by a student composer. That was my first ever commission. We performed that piece of music and that was the first ever percussion concerto. In the, oh, absolutely yeah. wonderful. I mean, you, know, you just, have, you just, have, you know, in in your field i mean you're a genuine history maker in, in in what you're doing and pushing those boundaries and i think you know as well as the music there are other um themes that i think feel important to your story and one of those is is creativity and the the, the nature of creativity mm-hmm. in us all because i think from what i can tell is that your belief is not about creativity being this kind of golden asset just of the talented it's a much more universal human experience to be nurtured it it absolutely is and I think you know when you've had the chance to travel to different parts of the world you see the most extraordinary creativity and it's not about fame or money or recognition or anything like that I mean some of the great great experiences I've had is seeing someone on a street um, at a street corner or in a little venue somewhere who are producing the most extraordinary things. And so your feet can very firmly be, you know, planted on that ground very easily. There's always something to learn, always something to be in awe of, always something to, uh, to be, you know, amazed at. And so yes, I mean, I think that also when I look at little kids and and just see the incredible flexibility they have physically and mentally, you know, they're absolutely like sponges. Their coordination is incredible. The flexibility of their limbs and so on, um, how they move, how they negotiate the objects. It's just so full of of openness and and you know, I find that really inspiring actually. Do you think there's a situational element to creativity where if you're lucky enough to find the right people to help you find expression and find pathways for it, it can be a really powerful thing. But similarly, it can be suppressed and it can be it can be things that, you know, can turn into quite a negative um, experience for people. as Absolutely. And I am a firm believer of improvisation. Um, I really am. And I think that we you know, appear in this world and we basically improvise, you know, we receive what's around us and then we do what we want, you know, with that information. We make it up as we go along. We we we, <laughs> we do until we're told to be quiet or to stand there or sit like this or eat your food like that, which of course there has to be some, even with improvisation, there has to be some structure or boundary or whatever. So if you're asked to improvise for five minutes, you have to practice that. You know, you have to practice what five minutes feels like or two minutes or, or, or 10 minutes, whatever. So really, I think that keeping that element of improvisation and nurturing improvisation, even when we're studying music, you know, even if we're working in an office, we need that element of improvisation to tap into both physical and mental elements mm. that might be, you know, thwarted or subdued or haven't been uh, stimulated for a while. Now, obviously, we're 
living in the era of COVID and you um, you composed your own lockdown classic beat of hope um, <laughs> and a, a community of banging pots and pans um, for the NHS. I mean, you don't get more improvised than that. I mean, do you, do you sense that COVID creates from the, the terrible tragedy of it? Does it, does it make that creativity, that more creative life, more or less possible, do you think, in terms of what happens next? I do. I think the world does need to be shaken up, actually, every now and again. And unfortunately, it can be real challenges and and uh, bleak moments, as we've all experienced uh, over this past year. And, you know, some of the greatest pieces of music or works of art um, have been drawn upon real, you know, disasters or, or extremely poignant, sad, sad moments. And I think the thing with COVID is that it has affected all of us one way or another. It really has. So we're actually able and more willing to reach out to other people and to listen to their stories mm. uh, because we can relate to it. We really can. So, you know, from that, I think we're finding that actually creativity is within us all. You know, we're wanting that participation, whether it's on a community level, whether it's virtually, whether it's with our next door neighbor, whether it's within our own household. We're, we're actually reaching out for that and mm. we're doing something with it. But as you speak, I'm thinking there is also at the same time always a rush to action and quite often for very good reasons. Um, you know, there's a rush to develop a vaccine and that's a good thing. But there's also a rush to almost set the narrative about what comes next. So the World Economic Forum talks about the the Great Reset. We'll often talk about renewal or whatever those, you know, phrases are. But almost to sort of, you know, finish where we started, which is about attention and listening. Is there... Mm. Is there an opportunity for the world to really listen, you know, what's going on around it, what's going on within it to, you know, sort of our, our ability to be kind to one another or our ability to look after the planet and its resources and its and, and its living creatures? I mean, is this is this the moment we could we could really pay attention and listen? I think it's a moment for sure but of course the world consists of so many you know different generations so what might work for a 5 year old for a 25 year old a 55 year old 85 year old and indeed a 105 year old which is is all you know uh, possible nowadays is that we all have very different perspectives and experiences um someone in their teenage years may have uh, quite a different um, weight to the situation or feel a different weight than perhaps, um, let's say, someone of my age. Um, but what I do feel is that this has definitely given us an opportunity to listen within, mm. listen to ourselves. It has to start with ourselves before we can listen to others. But it's trying to with all those, all those groups you've spoken about. I mean, that's almost like the world's orchestra. And it almost comes back to what you were talking about was, you know, what, what do great orchestras do? They, they create great sounds through great rhythm. 
It's so true. And, you know, we can't have an orchestra whereby you've got the a, a first class string section, wind section, percussion section and a really poor brass section. If there's one element that, you know, is is not functioning, no matter how great the rest of the orchestra will be, it will still not function. And so this is what this opportunity is, is, is seeing how can we all function Give the best we can, you know, by listening to ourselves and then that will lead to more considered action. We're all going to make mistakes. There's no, you know, that's that's human life. But there's there's a difference, you know, between doing something through spite or, or ignorance as opposed to having perhaps just thought about something for a second. Dame Evelyn Glennie, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Ever rhythmical, wonderful points, been a joy to interview you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.